0: Welcome to Swift Unwrapped, a weekly show about the Swift programming language and other Swift.org projects. This week, we're resuming a conversation with Ben Cohen and Doug Greger on the Swift 4.1 release. If you haven't listened to the first part, please do make sure to go back and listen to episode 50, because there's a lot of good stuff in there. Let's dive right in. So there's uh, a lot of this work that's coming out in Swift 4.1, and um, like you both mentioned, uh, had been um, in the initial ideas when building out functionality in the Swift language and standard library. Uh, and a lot of it is detailed in the generics manifesto. Uh, so I'm curious to hear your take on um, how everything in 4.1 uh contributes towards that Generics Manifesto vision, and um, how much more is left to accomplish, really, uh, from what was set out in that vision document.
1: Yeah, so we wrote the Generics Manifesto a couple of years ago, um, and the idea was to sort of lay out ideas for the future evolution of the Generics system and, and try to put it out there as a not a full coherent system of design, but possible directions we can go get some ideas of how they fit together. And I mean, one of the other main reasons for writing a document like that is to establish a common vocabulary. Right? We know what conditional conformance means. Because we can go look back at the the Generics Manifesto and see what see what that is, and if we, people come up with new features all the time, if we can map it back to a document, and say, ah, that's discussed here. Let's use this terminology. It makes it easier for everyone to to discuss these language features and how they work. So, I, we've made great progress on the Generics Manifesto. I mean, since we've written it. Uh, a number of the the pieces of that manifesto have been implemented. I mean conditional conformances and recursive protocol constraints are are on there. We've been talking about them here. I mean, prior to that, we had associated type where clauses, which were a big improvement in this Swift four time frame, also from the generics manifesto. And as Ben mentioned before, I feel like we've hit this first sort of plateau in the design of the generic system where, it's it's this vision, it fits together, things compose nicely, and we can express generic algorithms against it. This doesn't mean we're done. There's plenty more to go in the generics manifesto. And a couple of decision points about how much more do we add to the generic system? Because adding new features introduces expressivity can allow you to describe things that you couldn't describe before or maybe they were just hard to describe before. On the other hand, that can also introduce complexity. And um, the Generics Manifesto tries to to sort things into, these are very natural extensions and um, possible avenues depending on how Swift
2: evolves and how Swift's usage and community evolves. And so a good guide for that, again, is what are the things that people encounter where when they encounter it, they're like, wait, we don't have this? And depending on who you are, that you hit that point at different levels. So um, I think with this release, we're getting out of the way most of the ones where most regular programmers who are just learning the language afresh um, are hopefully no longer going to hit those, wait, that doesn't work, really, um, kind of situations. I think with the future directions of the Generics Manifesto, we're getting into some of the things where it's a much smaller audience of people who are saying, wait, we don't have this. So please, C++ programmers might, might look at um, variadic templates and say, oh, we don't have that. Okay, well, I have that in C++. But it's a much smaller audience. Um, the functional programmers probably have much more exotic things that um, they might encounter and say, oh, we don't have that. But they're not things that everyday programmers are probably going to encounter unless they're already familiar with that concept from another language.
0: So with all this work on uh, improvements to the generic system,
2: um, do you think it will make contributing to the standard library easier for external folks? I definitely think it will. And and one of the ways I, th- I like to think about that is actually, in in the more general case, it makes writing your own generic code easier. So we talked before about people moving from using generic code to writing their own generic code and how previously that was really pretty tricky. And I think now we're getting to the point where we can really advocate for people, hey, if you have this algorithm and you've written it against array, and now you're finding that you need to use it against some other type, like maybe your own custom uh, type or, or something like that, maybe you should consider writing a generic algorithm against collection. And I think this version of the language actually makes that a lot more of an approachable thing to be able to do for yourself. Now, once you've done it for yourself, the natural thing is, hey, I've written this really useful thing that didn't exist in the standard library. You know, I, you know, instead of wanting to know if a collection contains an element, I want to know if it contains only a specific element. And so that's not in the standard library. You add it yourself. You're like, this is really useful. Maybe I should make this into an evolution proposal. Um, And so I think that's really the best route into um, contributing to the standard library is that writing generic code for your own purposes and then looking at it and saying, okay, if I generalised this a little bit more, maybe it would be something that could make a good proposal. Um, The other thing that this release does, like we've mentioned already, is get rid of a lot of the jib that was in the standard library. That, as somebody who works in it, myself on a regular basis is pretty intimidating and the fact that we've gone from i think it's something like 25 jib files down to just a handful um is actually reducing a really major barrier to to working on the standard library itself yeah because we're no longer meta programming which is tricky
3: i didn't realize it was that dramatic of a difference Uh, That's pretty awesome.
2: Yeah. So, yeah, we had jib files for... um, uh, And it's not all about the generic system. Actually, some of it is about the optimizer getting a little bit more advanced. Mm -hmm. So, um, we previously... One of the other reasons we used to use jib is to stamp out two versions of a function. Let's say you have a a, a function like contains, right? So, there are two versions of that. One that um, uh, takes an equatable element and checks whether the co- sequence contains that element, and another one that takes a closure that is any arbitrary test that you can supply yourself. Now, if you're writing it yourself, you would naturally um, probably write one in terms of the other. That is, you'd write the one that takes a closure, and then you'd write the version that um, uh, tests for an equitable element by writing a closure that does equals. Yeah. Okay. Um, we uh, previously used to stamp out two versions of that, and duplicate the code. And the reason was that the optimizer had to do a lot of work behind the scenes to make sure that those two things were optimally compiled. Mm-hmm. The optimizer has got a lot better recently, and so actually that's an example of a file that we dejibbed in order to get rid of that duplication so that we actually wrote it the way that you would always wanted to write it, which is to implement one in terms of the other, and the optimizer is able to get rid of the uh, the abstraction to make the both of them just as efficient. That's
0: great to hear, and especially in the context that uh, folks who are using the closure. Uh, contains with their own code um, can now probably have a more optimized uh, contains as well. So it doesn't just benefit the de of the compiler of the standard library, but also uh, Swift developers. Exactly.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think this Thank happens you. in a lot of languages where the standard library is always pushing the language forward. It's always working with compiler features that are not quite ready, Mm -hmm. and so you make compromises, and the compromises always make the standard library more complicated to work around the problems, because there's a benefit to that for the entire community. As the language features improve, the optimizers improve, you can start cleaning up the standard library, and the more it approaches normal Swift code, (laughs) uh, the better it is well, for contributions like we started on and just in general because it means the, the language itself is gelling nicely.
2: And also because the, the language is open source, it it's better to have the standard library moved to a point where it's a way to learn about how to write good Swift code. Right. Um, and in previous incarnations, I would say that that is probably not what it was. You would look at this thing and you would like, why did they write it like that? Um, and the answer is because we want to make it as fast as possible because you know it is called a gazillion times a day by certain functions. Um, but really what we'd like to do is take it to the point where actually you can look at that code and say, okay, this is actually a style guide for how we would, you should write generic code. And, and we're getting a lot closer to that point.
3: Yeah, and another thing is that, you know, I'd find myself often wanting to go browse the source of the standard library, just like through GitHub's UI uh, on the web, and very often you just hit a jib file, and you can still kind of read it and, you know, kind of parse through it and understand it, but uh, it's much nicer if it were you know, just normal, quote, normal Swift code. Yeah, you want to try Uh, debugging it. Right. No no more step through for you. (laughs) Uh, So is the goal then to uh, eventually get rid of these jib files completely, or do you see, like, some necessity for them?
2: So it would take a lot more language features to get to that point. But I think chipping away at them. I think... Variadic generics is one thing that maybe in the future we might have that um, would get rid of one use case, which is, for example, stamping out um, uh, the uh, tuple comparison uh, operators. So right now you can compare a two tuple or a five tuple uh, with equals equals. Mm -hmm. And that's actually just stamped out a dozen different times, or however many, I think it's, uh, maybe it's only six, Uh, up to six tuples um, using Jib. Um, At the moment, that's the best way to do it. Maybe some future language capability would allow us to express that in the generic system in a slightly more principled fashion.
3: Yeah, that was a uh, um, Um, part of that proposal to just kind of, uh, that introduced Equatable for tuple types. Uh, Just kind of an artificial constraint. Like, we'll just go this far because uh, we can't really, uh, or just like not feasible to say a tube of any size can. Exactly.
2: The idea is that seven plus is probably a pretty rare occurrence. Yeah. Or so we hope.
1: We hope so. And and of course, in this case, it's um, overload of the operator the equality operator, it's not equatable conformance. So this is right. uh, part of the generics manifesto where um, it's described there as taking structural types, like tuples, and making those conform to protocols. It's not something you can do today. And it's it's one of these things that's sort of at the next level of uh, problems with composability that programmers hit. Mm-hmm just like we talked about with um, arrays not being equatable prior to conditional conformances, well, right now you can't have, say, a dictionary whose key is a tuple type because you can't make that thing hashable. And so one completely reasonable general direction is, well, I should be able to extend a tuple of two elements where they're both equatable
2: and make that thing
1: equatable, make it hashable.
2: And of course, these things are always workar- have workarounds. So you know, right now, you have to slap it inside a struct and then use that, which is not sure. so bad. You yeah. know? Um, but it'd be nicer to, like, again, have some of that boilerplate fall away in the future.
3: The only case I can think of where you'd have very large tuples is interacting with C APIs, where very, arrays very large are tuples. imported as uh, tuples. <laughs>
1: One could certainly say that that's the wrong way to import arrays. (laughs) Uh, It has come up, certainly, in a number of occasions that some kind of fixed-length array type would make a lot of sense in in Swift. Mm -hmm. And it's not clear whether that's some new kind of structural type that we would create, or whether we're just waiting for the right language features to come along to make that something that you could encode naturally in the the standard library.
0: Uh, Speaking of... Conditional conformances, uh, there's a certain dynamic runtime aspect to them, um, and or rather how it interacts with the dynamic Swift runtime. Uh, noticeably, the dynamic casting feature, so the as or as question mark keyword. So that's something that uh, the current Swift 4.1 releases up, up to date uh, don't support and uh, something that's been implemented. Um, so curious uh, what that whole story is about.
1: Sure. So, of course, Swift is a a very dynamic language. It has a very static type system that we're used to working with, um, but it also has a strong dynamic component. And much of what is expressed in the static type system that we use all the time also needs to be reflected in the runtime so it can be evaluated as your program is running. Um, Dynamic casting is the easiest place to see this and with swift 4.1 conditional conformances are fully implemented in the static type checker of the compiler but they were not fully implemented in the runtime so the easiest way to see this is to create an array of integers and then hide it from the static type system by putting it into a variable of type any and so you've erased all of the di- the static type information And now it's down to the runtime. And so then take that any and perform a dynamic cast with as question mark to codable. Now, from the static perspective, this works because you have an array of codable things. There's a conditional conformance that say arrays of codable elements are, in fact, themselves codable. Uh, And if you run this code with Swift 4.1, you get a warning from the runtime. It's more like an apology than a warning. (laughs) that says, we cannot evaluate this conditional conformance, and that cast always returns nil. So, uh, we've been working on this since then, and the feature is fully implemented on on the the master branch of of the Swift compiler. And essentially what it requires is taking all of those conditional conformances and everything that goes into them and being able to dynamically evaluate it while your program is running. And so, if it sees that you have a dynamic cast from something that currently stores an array of integers to Codable, we have to go look for a conformance to Codable. We find it's conditional. And the condition is, well, the element type of that array needs to be codable. So we dynamically check, is this element type codable? If so, we can apply this conditional conformance and then perform the cast at runtime. And so what happens here is we're essentially encoding all of the constraints that you can write in a where clause. You've got conformance constraints, superclass constraints, these same type constraints to say the two elements are equivalent. All of these are encoded in metadata that go into your program, and the runtime will dynamically evaluate them to know when it can apply the conditional conformance. So actually implementing this uh, required a significant amount of effort into improving the the type metadata within the runtime um, data structures so that we could recover all of this information about different constraints on types and on protocol conformances.
0: Sounds pretty complex. Um, Is there... A chance that we'll see this in a uh, Swift 4.x release, or is the scope of these changes
1: um, important enough to uh, to wait until a major Swift release? So most of these changes are under the hood and completely invisible to users. I mean, other than of course it manifests here in in the dynamic casting infrastructure. But yeah, these these changes are already in master. They're going into 4.2 as part of this. Uh, this and the ongoing effort for to do ABI stability, we've reworked most of the type metadata. So we have this very, very rich type metadata that we can rely on within the runtime. Dynamic casting is where it currently manifests. Um, but if any of your listeners have uh, watched Joe Groff's talk at Swift Summit on Swift's reflective underpinnings, mm-hmm. we've really shored those up as part of ABI stability to have this extremely rich metadata. And... At this point, what it's waiting for is the right language or library design to come along to really express that reflective information back to Swift programmers so that they can make use of it themselves rather than it being sort of buried in the implementation guts.
0: Right. This kind of feels like a little bit of a push and pull there between. Um, ABI stability needing to expose more runtime hooks, for example, and some of the code size optimizations that are happening by being able to reduce some of the uh, generated code and, and the JIP files and um, conditional conformance also helping. So it really does seem like there's, uh, there's a push and pull happening in order to, to get to ABI stability without just adding things to the runtime and, and probably ballooning
1: the, uh, the, the size of Swift in the process. Right. You you want to maintain the type metadata that lets you do interesting things. Well, you at least need the the metadata to support dynamic casting. That's not optional. Mm-hmm. The, the language actually has to work the way the way it's described. Uh, you would like additional type metadata that allows you to do reflection at some point nicely later on. Uh, a lot of the work that we've been doing is finding ways to encode that type metadata so it is extremely compact. Um, that it provides forward and backward compatibility so that the, the ABI that we stabilize on has information to keep building out this, this rich language and library ecosystem. But yeah, we're not burning a lot of code size to, to do so. And we, we found a large number of really fun implementation tricks <laughs> that you can do to encode metadata quite compactly. Um, so we have much richer metadata, but I believe it's getting smaller than it was in previous releases. That's
3: exciting. Can you elaborate on some of the techniques that you used to do that? Yeah,
1: so the primary technique we've been using, and we've we've found a number of places throughout the the runtime and the metadata structures where it helps, is actually a mangled name. Hmm. So as a Swift programmer, you've probably come across mangled names. Uh, so they're underscore T or dollar sign S. And uh, these big names, completely indecipherable until you've been a compiler writer for a couple of years. So any, so any, say, function that you have has a mangled name. And that tells a lot of information about the function. So the, the mangled name for a function will tell you what class it's a method of. For example, it'll tell you the name of the function, the, names, the argument labels, with the function, it will tell you all of the types of the parameters to that function, as well as the result type. And if it's a generic function, it'll also encode all of the generic requirements. So this is essentially all you need to completely understand how to properly call a function. Plus and the module it that it's part of, right? And the module it's part of. And the initial reason for having mangled names in languages, in many languages, any language with overloading will have mangled names of some sort, is you want to make sure that if uh, people write two different overloads of the same function name, they don't collide in the linker. It was originally a hack to get Unix linkers to be able to support code uh, for languages with with overloading. In Swift, uh, we've taken the approach that we want to store all of the type information there. We want to lose nothing when we actually do a mangled name. And Where this becomes important is that mangled names are actually super compressed. So they affect binary size. And so there's a a lot of work that goes into making mangled names very compact. There's substitution machinery that goes in there, uh, Huffman encoding and so on. So it's a great way to describe types. And what we've been doing is rolling out through the the runtime and the type metadata the use of mangled names to describe all of the types. And uh, we have a runtime demangler that takes the name, demangles it, and turns it into essentially an any dot type that you can use in your program.
0: It's really cool stuff. Uh, I'm very curious to, to know how that works with the forward compatibility guarantees. If you're doing compression, and you're, you're essentially basing that compression based off of what's already in, say, the list of mangled symbols, if that list changes, how does that compression guarantee that those names are actually forward ABI-compatible?
1: It certainly limits us, so the, the substitution scheme that we have to compress mangled names, that's not allowed to change. Hmm. Uh, the existing manglings we have are not allowed to change, so we'll have to maintain those going forward. Uh, as we invent new language features, uh, we will have to extend the mangling space, so there, there is space in the mangling grammar for extensions, um, so we can grow it. Uh, there's an interesting backward compatibility question there of if you use a new mangling on an old runtime, how do you deal with that? Uh, it's something we're still thinking about. Um, but we've done a lot of work to improve the mangling. We're pretty happy with it right now. And so we feel like we have room to grow there as the language grows.
3: Uh, for like a more concrete example there, something like typed throws would re- require an extension in that mangling. Is that correct? Or? Yeah,
1: something like typed throws would, would likely uh, require an extension. So right now, as part of the... The function type mangling, we mangle whether it throws or not. Mm-hmm. If we were to add type throws, we'd want to extend that mangling to say what the thrown type or list of types, who knows what the design's going to be, mm-hmm. actually is. So yeah, we would need to extend the, the mangling and the de- demanglers to handle that as well.
3: Was this use case kind of foreseen, or was the mangling just implemented originally as a way to you know make sure you are calling the right function, uh, like what you described before? The mangling
1: in Swift has always been more than just about avoiding collisions at link time. Uh, We've already been using it in some of our other tools like instruments to describe types um, via type name and mangle. Uh, When we did uh, conditional conformances work in the runtime is when we actually had to be able to express all of the requirements of a generic signature of a where clause. In some compact form, we realized that has to describe the entire type system because you can write anything in in a where clause, and the mangled name came up as the, the sort of obvious way that we already have to encode all of this information, and so we started to build up that infrastructure. Um, and realized a lot of our metadata had this, this same notion of we need to express what a type is and then be able to evaluate it at runtime to produce a type value. And since then, we've we've rolled out these some mangled names through uh, the Mirrors representation, so that metadata is much smaller, um, and have been provi- improving some of the other tools that we have to to inspect a uh, Swift program based on this this notion of using a mangled name as the best way to represent type metadata throughout. yeah.
0: Even third-party tooling has leveraged some of the mangled name stuff in order to disambiguate between different declarations like uh, documentation generators, for example, or things that want to link back into Xcode where SourceKit will actually conveniently let you try to find where mangled names define your source code and navigate to that. So it's, it's definitely been... Uh, and kind in of the gray area of what's <laughs> supported, but um, it's been extremely useful. And uh, there are probably some avenues in the future where uh, perhaps a if there's stabilization work happening on the ABI front, that it can also uh, potentially expose stable-ish hooks for external uh, tool providers to also uh, be able to interop. So, uh, really exciting kind of subsystem of of how Swift works is is that a whole yeah.
3: internal mangling stuff. Yeah, and I'm assuming that's uh, LLDB takes advantage of this as well. Uh, it for, does yeah. certainly. Uh,
1: yeah, LLDB uses some of the hooks that that take a, a mangled type name, for example, and turn it into a type that can be presented to the user and manipulated within LLDB. And so there there are a number of different. Um, sort of tools and libraries related to Swift that that all work in this common currency of mangled type names, so they can look into a process and understand what it's doing uh, with its types and inspect its values. Interesting.
0: Getting back to four point one release, um, Jesse, is there anything else that's in that release that's uh, gotten you uh, all excited to use it? It's definitely been a lot of uh, uh, community. Uh, proposals that have been implemented as well, right?
3: Yeah, yeah. Uh, one that sticks out for me is the uh, the CAN import uh, proposal. I think it's uh, SC75. So yeah, it was actually proposed a while back. Uh, actually, at work uh, at PlanGrid, this actually solves a problem that we have right now. Um, so we're pretty excited to have this... Uh, Uh, get into the official release. Well,
0: Especially if you develop any sort of cross-platform Swift, if you want to support anything other than the Darwin platforms, then I've often seen hard-coded things for OS Linux, but really Mm -hmm. what you want is to perform one way on Darwin, one way on other platforms, and uh, yeah, this this definitely seems to uh, enable that in a more extensive or comprehensive way. Yeah, what else is there?
2: I mean, you mentioned earlier, um, I mean, one of the nice things is that we are able to introduce a lot of these features in, in, the, in the point releases. So um, uh, we've, we have found that um, increasingly, as we add these features, we don't need to worry about source compatibility problems that we're used to in previous releases. So mm. I think one of the nice things, it's, it's kind of a non-feature, uh, is that 4.1 doesn't really introduce any Um, any concerns from that point of view Um, so even with uh, like for example eliminating huge swathes of types that existed out there um, we've been able to use generic type aliases which were actually a feature that was introduced in when was that that was uh, 3.0 I think I think so Um, so we've been making actually really heavy use of what was was previously maybe one of the lesser used features to to introduce um, source compatibility type aliases. So so even though we've made a lot of changes under the hood, um, including to existing public types that were in the standard library, uh, we were able to do it in. in in a 4.1 release as, a, as opposed to a major release that would involve migrator changes because uh, we were able to introduce these changes in a way that was completely source-compatible, which was which was definitely nice.
3: Do you see those type aliases sticking around or
2: eventually uh, being removed? So the nice thing about type aliases is they have no ABI footprint. So uh, they only exist okay. uh, for compilation purposes. So... Um, uh, even after we have a stable ABI, um, we can eventually eliminate them um, in some future version of the language. Um, but that has a pretty slow burn. There's no like pressing reason, you know. I, I will miss uh, the occasional sight of my mutable random <laughs> access range replaceable slice as it flies by every now and again. <laughs>
0: uh, can you mark type aliases as deprecated?
2: Yes. Okay. Yep. Fascinating. and obsoleted. So yeah, you should get a little um, pop-up saying, "Hey, you're using." I mean in practice nearly all of the time, you were using type inference anyway, so you would hardly yep. ever need to explicitly type these things.
0: Right, because you don't go over your uh, column width if you were trying to
2: explicitly write this down. <laughs> Yes, and we have a very strict column width. <laughs> uh, 80 characters or or die. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so um, you, you will occasionally see a deprecation warning, but you can just handle that at your leisure, basically.
0: Uh, and was it possible to use... Uh, I guess it wouldn't really be a generic, well, it was a generic type alias for this changing of index index distance to a concrete int, because uh, really, as far as the consumer is concerned, it's still just index distance.
2: Yeah, so we, in fact, there was a bug that Doug very kindly fixed um, that allowed us to add type aliases to protocols, which I guess is a new feature, I guess, in, in the, the compiler used to crash if you did it before. <laughs> Um so uh yeah so what we actually did was we added a type alias to collection of index distance and gave it a fault value of int and then we added a handful of um compatib- generic compatibility shims that meant that in the very rare cases in fact i think in the source compatibility suite there were maybe only two examples that we found in the very rare cases where people had created um collections that had non int index distances um there are some compatibility shims in there that means that actually the code that code still compiles. It just does the conversion to int using a numeric cast for you, so that you don't actually have to change anything. You just get a little deprecation warning saying, "Hey, you're, you've defined a custom index distance, and now you don't need to do this anymore."
3: Um, Great. Yeah, I missed that. Type aliases are now uh, back in protocols. Like well, you know, before it was
2: different. Ah, yeah, you know, that's a good the point. associated they, type. They used to be what we called associated types, I guess. And right. now,
1: yeah, right. We we had type alias meant back then meant what associated type means now. Yeah, and actually, the type aliases and protocols has been a feature of Swift sort of since maybe three one. It's been around for a while, but its semantics were always a little bit underdefined and have shifted from release to release a little bit as we try to understand what it really means. Mm -hmm. Um, Generally speaking, it's just a type alias. It should be a simple notion. Um, But there are questions around, well, what if that type alias has the same name of an associated type in your protocol? We treat it like it's the same type constraint because people were using it that way. Mm. Uh, But it's been an interesting journey to to try to really tease out what this this good and well intentioned feature actually really means in in the Swift language because it's its usage has been a little inconsistent over the years.
0: Yeah. Uh well thank you very much for uh agreeing to discuss all of these exciting new topics and developments with us.
3: Yeah, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you for having us. It's been a pleasure.
0: So we encourage our listeners to try out Swift 4.1. Uh, it should be out shortly. Uh, if you want to learn more about the show, you can find it on Twitter uh, at Swift underscore Unwrapped. You can find me on
3: Twitter at SimJP. You can find me on Twitter at uh, Jesse underscore Squires. And Ben and Doug, where can people find you guys? Sure, you can find us on Twitter as well. I'm at Swift. And I'm at DGregor79. All right, thanks for listening.